Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 6, Ezra chapters 3 and 4. We're going to continue Ezra chapter 3 today. And as we do so, let's kind of review last week for just a moment. I want us to always keep in mind that the underlying foundation for both Ezra and Nehemiah is this zealous desire of many thousands of emancipated Jewish exiles for restoration and renewal of proper Yehovah worship based on obedience to God's divine Torah. Yet, we are in a historical section of the Old Testament that seeks to give us a historically accurate account of the Jews' return to Jerusalem and of the rebuilding of the temple. So timing and sequence of events is critical to our understanding. Unfortunately, we find at the opening verses that the timeline of events here and for the next several chapters is difficult to follow. There seems to be obvious discrepancies. And that is partially, but not entirely, because of our modern use of chapter breaks, of paragraph breaks, of verse designations, because it can throw us off course and it can create a wrong impression. That is, we've all grown up and been educated to take for granted that a change in chapters marks a change in scene or circumstances or maybe time. And that the end of one paragraph and the beginning of the next marks a change in thought, perhaps time, perhaps a change in characters. So when we read the Bible and we see a long series of of words that are usually sentences, And this series of words is then given a verse number. And then we see two or more verses strung together in the same paragraph. We just assume that this is an ongoing description or discussion of some continuing action. But we have to grasp that's not at all how the Bible was written originally. Bible books were written in one long sequence of sentences without chapters, without paragraphs, and without verse markings. It was in the 13th century AD when scholars decided to break the Bible books up into chapters. Later still, when they decided to break up chapters into paragraphs. And then later still, in the 16th century, when they broke up chapters into verses. Their choices reflected European literary conventions from those eras, not Hebrew literary conventions from ancient times. Most of the time, this poses no problem. Sometimes it does. Here in Ezra, it does. The problem we discussed in our last lesson dealt with the timeline of Ezra chapter 3 and how it was impossible that only months after leaving Persia these returning Jews already had enormously expensive cedar logs and wood paneling on the way from Lebanon in order to rebuild the temple. 
designing plans for the temple and then the logistics of getting logs from the far north to Jerusalem was an epic undertaking that would take years, not months. So how do we account for verse 6 that says that in the seventh month of the year, right after their arrival to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the altar but the foundation of the temple had not been laid. But then, in verse 7, we have logs arriving from Lebanon, stone workers, other craftsmen being paid for their labors that can involve nothing else but temple reconstruction. The answer is that using modern Western literary convention of paragraph breaks, the break that our modern Bibles have inserted after verse 7 should have gone after verse 6. That is, verse 6 ends a thought. It ends a time. Verse 7 starts a new thought at a new time. So chapter 3 Verses 1 through, 1 through 6 speak of events that occurred during the reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the guy who released the Jews. And then starting in verse 7, we leap ahead in time to the first years of King Darius, who came two kings later after Cyrus. Therefore, where our Bibles have created this paragraph break between verses 7 and 8, we kind of need to erase that. Just let verse 7 flow right into verse 8 without any kind of a break. Verse 7 and 8 then are connected. They are one continuing thought and action. Verses 6 and 7 are not connected. And they represent two entirely different scenarios separated by some number of years. So, in verse 8, we're told that the time frame that is being dealt with is that we're in the second year of some certain people's arrival at the Beit Elohim Yerushalayim, the house of the God of Jerusalem. And among them were Zerubbabel and Yeshua, the high priest. Now a casual reading would suggest this means the second year of the exile's return to Jerusalem. However, the writer makes it clear that's not his meaning. Because he adds a qualifier that uses the words, of their coming to the house of God. Now because the context of this verse begins in verse 7, then we know that this is pointing at the time when the work on the rebuilding of the temple was finally beginning by collecting all the necessary building materials. So after the rebuilding of the altar, and then the immediate celebration of Sukkot, which was at the beginning of this chapter, some time passed. Now, later, the temple construction is going to begin. So in verse 9, the supervision of the temple workers is put into the hands of all the leading families who were all Levites from the line of Aaron, and they're named. 
So after laying the foundation for the temple, a big celebration was held. Now I want to be clear. The only accomplishment at this point was the foundation. No more. But considering the difficulties, all the political opposition that these returnees had faced and the years that had gone by just in getting to this point, it's pretty obvious that they felt a holy convocation was called for to commemorate this auspicious day. We're told that the Kohanim, the priests, were all in their priestly robes that had been donated by the heads of the clans and the Levites played those symbols two metal discs that you bang together to establish a beat. And interestingly, we're told that this order of ceremony was something that King David had established as a tradition and it seemed right to them to reestablish it. There was also singing, no doubt, of psalms, which consisted of two kinds, songs of praise, songs of thanksgiving. And here we need to take note that the Thanksgiving song spoke of God's chesed, His loving kindness towards Israel. Towards Israel. It doesn't say towards Judah. This is important in that we need to keep reminding ourselves that this Nation of is that the nation of Israel was not being reestablished by the return of the Jews. It was only the Jews returning to repopulate the Persian province of Judah. But during their return from the Babylonian exiles, the Jews came to the determination that they represented all twelve tribes. All Israel. Not merely the two that they really were. Judah and Benjamin. This became an embedded cultural belief. A non-negotiable reality to them. Despite this being historically and biblically inaccurate and it has remained so for 2,500 years. Only today in our time is this tradition starting to come undone as the ten lost tribes of Israel have re-emerged and they are demanding to immigrate to Israel and they've made it clear that the Jews are not all Israel and that the members of the ten tribes are not Jews. And then verse 12 explains that despite this unfettered exuberance expressed by most Jews at this momentous event of the beginning reconstruction of God's house, some of the older Jews who had seen the temple before it was destroyed, well, they weren't very joyful. In fact, they wept, they wailed in sorrow and disappointment for what they saw. But we have to ask ourselves, what is it that so upset them? They were witnessing a dedication of foundations, not the structure. The only situation I can imagine is that the foundation must have been of poor quality, using much smaller foundation stones, and or the outline of the foundation must have indicated that the new temple was going to be noticeably smaller 
than Solomon's temple. We should note that earlier when the altar was rebuilt, the scriptures say it was rebuilt on the same foundations as the original altar, meaning it was not only the same location, it was the same size. So while the location of the new temple would be the same as the original, its size was apparently going to be somewhat less. And if you, here you see an example in this slide of what I'm talking about, about different sized stones. When we look at the Temple Mount today, we can easily see the contrast between the grandness of the carefully crafted huge stones that the Jews used for first class construction versus these irregular smaller stones that the Muslim Turks used at a later time. The difference is glaring. You don't have to be an archaeologist to notice the difference. So it's not hard to imagine why the older Judeans had a very hard time with this. Let's move on to chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. Open your Bibles to page 1121 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people from the exile were building a temple of Adonai, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's clans and said to them, Let us build along with you, for we seek your God just as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him since the time of Ashar Hadon, the king of Asher, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's clans of Israel answered them, You and we have nothing in common that you should join us in building a house for our God. We will build by ourselves for Adonai, the God of Israel, as Koresh, king of Persia, ordered us to do. Then the people of the land began discouraging the people of Judah in order to make them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to frustrate their plan throughout the lifetime of Koresh, Cyrus, king of Persia, and on into the reign of Daryavesh, Darius, king of Persia. During the reign of Ahasuerus, uh, which was uh, Xerxes, at the beginning of his reign, they brought a charge in writing against the people living in Judah and Jerusalem. And during the time of Artashasta, Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mitdrat, Tavel, and their other colleagues wrote Artaxasta. The letter was written in Aramaic using Aramaic script. Rahum, the district governor in Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxasta, Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. From Rehum, the district governor, Shimshai, the secretary, their other colleagues, the judges, the officials, the Dinaim, the Arfatsakim, the Tarplim, the Afarsim, the Arkvim, the Bavlim, the Shushankaim, the Dehaim, the Melaim, and the other nations of whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in Shomron, and the others who remain in the country beyond the Euphrates River. To Artaxasta, Artaxerxes, the king from his people, from his servants, the people beyond the river. Let the king know that the Judeans who left you to come to us in Jerusalem are building this rebellious and wicked city. 
They have finished the walls. Now they're digging the foundations. So let the king know that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they'll refuse to pay tribute, tax, or toll. This will reduce the royal revenue. Now because we eat the king's salt and it's not right for us to see the king dishonored, we therefore are sending to inform the king so that a search can be made in the archives of your ancestors. In these archives, you will find and ascertain that this city is indeed a rebellious city, the bane of kings and provinces, and that sedition has been fostered there since ancient times, which is why this city was destroyed. We submit to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, you will soon lose possession of all territories beyond the river. The king sent this answer to Rahum, the district governor, Shimshai, the secretary, their other colleagues living in Shamron, and the, rest beyond, uh, and the rest beyond the river. Shalom. The letter you sent us has now been translated for me. I ordered a search made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings. The rebellion and sedition have been fostered there. Also that... There have been powerful kings over Jerusalem who ruled all the territory beyond the river and tribute and taxes and tolls were paid to them. So now order these men to stop work. This city is not to be rebuilt until I order it. Take care not to neglect your duty. Otherwise the harm may increase to to the damage of the king. When the letter of King Artaxerxes when the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai, the secretary, and their colleagues, they hurried to Jerusalem to the Judeans and stopped their work by force of arms. So the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. It remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of Daryavesh, Darius, king of Persia. Professor H.G.M. Williamson said something in one of his lectures that's always stuck with me. He said, The work of God in all ages has known the pressures and persecutions of those who would seek to frustrate its advance. It's an astute observation and it's an important reality check for believers in all eras. In chapter 3, we first heard of nearby political factions who threatened the returning Jews and they inhibited the temple construction such that it delayed its start. Now here in chapter 4, we get more specifics and we even learn of opposition groups reporting these Jews to the Persian authorities as potential rebels and tax dodgers with the hope of thwarting both the construction of the temple and the restoration of these all-important defensive walls of Jerusalem. But to what end? Why would these groups be opposed to these projects? Well, as is the case with Power and politics from time immemorial, different groups had different agendas, and so there was not just a single cause or a reason for the opposition, but several. And we're going to uncover some of these reasons as we proceed through this chapter and beyond. The Bible shows us again and again it is necessary. 
for our spiritual spiritual maturity that God's worshipers become comfortable with being made uncomfortable. The Jews of the era of Zerubbabel and then Ezra no doubt happily journeyed back to Jerusalem. King Cyrus's decree in hand, believing that what lay ahead was smooth seas, clear skies, near universal acceptance of their divinely inspired mission to rebuild their city and temple, and that the only barriers to success would be the practical realities of time and funds to organize, to plan, to gather all the construction materials, and the inevitable delays of weather and errors and schedules that were maybe a little too aggressive. They seem to have been caught by surprise. They became discouraged at this unexpected, this vehement opposition to their plans. Was God maybe not in this after all? And how could the Lord follow through with His promise to first exile the Jews for their unfaithfulness then keep them in exile for 70 years, and then after a proper period of discipline, send them home, only to find their hopes and dreams blocked at every turn. The Jews of the modern state of Israel ask themselves this question regularly. How could God do the impossible by recreating this reborn nation of Israel in just one day. Then bring home Jews by the thousands from every corner of the globe. Help them to win wars against the many enemies who surround and outnumber them 50 to 1. Give them back their precious holy city of Jerusalem with the Temple Mount And yet almost 50 years later, they seem further away from their dream of rebuilding a new temple, the third one, on the Holy Mount than ever before. What's stopping them? Money? No. Building materials? No. A priesthood with their implements and and the needed temple furnishings? No. Priests have been found, trained. The needed implements and the furnishings are mostly completed today and in storage. It's only the political opposition. It's only the threats from various groups nearby and far away, domestic and foreign, Jews and Gentiles, friends and foes. The God pattern is, as Professor Williams so aptly proposed, the work of God in all ages has known the pressure and persecutions of those who would seek to frustrate its advance. Risk and discomfort for God's people is usual. We just don't like that very much. Opposition's normal. Having received what seems to be a clear, God-directed purpose and mission, that does not mean a clear path is going to be provided to achieve it. 
of these negative things are to be expected. Paul said this about that in 2 Timothy 3.10-13. But you, you have closely followed my teaching and conduct and purposes in life and trust and steadfastness and love and perseverance as well as the persecutions and sufferings that came my way in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured! Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And indeed, all who want to live a godly life united with the Messiah Yeshua will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving others while being deceived themselves. And our Messiah left us, left us with this important warning that we find in John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, understand it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, the world would have loved its own. But because you do not belong to the world, on the contrary, I have picked you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, here's the thing. In a decision that's frankly unfathomable to me, our all-powerful God determined to bring redemption to the world by means of a cooperative adventure with mankind. This same God could have simply spoken and the world as we know it would be as easily brought to an end and then renewed as when He first created it. He could have made evil impossible to exist. He could have supernaturally inhibited humanity from making evil an available choice. He could have brought he could bring about redemption without any human participation whatsoever. But in his eternal wisdom, that's not the choice he made. Rather, he's decided to place much responsibility into the hands of all those who call him Lord. He has made it our job to tell everyone who will hear that the Lord is King. The Lord is our Savior. And of course, we are well outnumbered by those who oppose this message. That's because it's not our message. It's God's message. And it's a message that really, in truth, brings more anger and dissension and rejection than welcome and hope. One of my all-time favorite movies is a World War II action drama called The Band of Brothers. This series follows the 101st Airborne paratroopers from training to D-Day to victory in Europe. And in one scene, they're dropped smack into the middle of overwhelming German military forces. And when a lieutenant realizes their precarious condition and complains to his superior, Captain Winters, that they're in this 
grave danger and somebody has severely fouled this situation all up. This excellent officer who leads them says, we're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. See, paratroopers aren't trained to avoid the enemy. They're trained to confront the enemy. Even more, they were trained to take the fight to the enemy's territory. Captain Winter's attitude is precisely the one that God's people are supposed to have. It's not that if we're surrounded by the enemy, something's wrong. It's that if we're not, something is wrong. It's not that if we're uncomfortable, out of step with the world, and find ourselves following God's commandments, but nothing good seems to be happening, that means something's wrong. It's that if we're not facing discomfort and opposition, something's wrong. The Jews of Zerubbabel's, then Ezra's, then Nehemiah's day had to learn that lesson before God allowed the temple to finally be built. But for a while, they seemed to take a path to try to find a political compromise in order to bring the desired result. See, modern Israel is trying to do the same thing. So is the church in general. The approach is to look more like the world and give them most of what they want. Why? To alleviate the discomfort. To appease the opposition. To move out of the uncomfortable condition that in some ways is really a sign that we're directly in God's will. Now, I don't want you to take that last remark out of context and extend it too far. Christian cults have arisen and died out only to rise again who intentionally try to find ways to be persecuted. If that doesn't work, they harm themselves. It's not that we ought to go looking for trouble. It's that we should expect it when we encounter it. Because being devoted to the God of Israel means being an enemy to everything else. And when we do encounter it, we need to regroup, we need to be persistent and patient in our discomfort as we continue on our journey with Christ. Easier said than done, isn't it? But don't feel like you're alone if at times you stumble or you fail. Perhaps the most outspoken, I think maybe courageous, most courageous of all the apostles was Paul. And he wrote this, which well characterizes our dilemma. In Romans 7, 15 through 25, he said this I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the Torah is good. But now it's no longer the real me doing it, but 
the sin that's housed inside of me. For I know there's nothing good housed inside of me that is in my side, my old nature. I can want what's good, but I can't do it. For I don't do the good I want. Instead, this this evil that I don't want is what I do. But if I'm doing what the real me doesn't want, it's no longer the real me doing it. But the sin that's still housed inside of me. So I find it to be the rule, kind of a perverse Torah, that although I want to do what is good, evil's right there with me. From my in my inner self. I completely agree with God's Torah, but in my various parts, I see a different Torah. I see one that battles with the Torah in my mind and makes me a prisoner of sin's Torah which is operating in my various parts. I mean, what a miserable creature I am! Who will rescue me from this body that's bound for death? Thanks be to God, He will, through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. Ezra chapter 4 opens with this classic deception of Satan. Can't we all just get along? The locals and those not far away from Jerusalem come to Zerubbabel and they ask, can we join forces in your efforts to rebuild the temple? Shocked, they receive a most harsh reply from Zerubbabel that pulls no punches. The offer is summarily rejected with no apologies. In fact, it includes an insult and no hope for compromise. Look at the opening half dozen words of verse 1. It says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin... See, the editor of Ezra makes it clear that these people coming to ask for permission to join in, they weren't well-meaning and sincere folks who wanted to be good neighbors. Or were they a welcoming committee coming to the Jewish leadership? Rather, they were downright enemies of the Jews who sought to portray themselves as friends, or at least as sharing a common cause. And as we're soon going to see, they're not enemies in the sense that Hitler was an enemy of France or or the USA in World War II, but rather in the sense of cleverly trying to grab hold of the Jews' vision of rebuilding the temple and restarting true Torah-observant worship of God and then co-opting it to turn it into something more in line with their ways. And we can trace these enemies back to the beginning of chapter 3 when the Jews hurried to rebuild the altar of sacrifice so that they could perform the tamid, the, the daily burnt offering, so that they could celebrate Sukkot and observe as many of the appointed times that require sacrifices as possible. We are informed in verse 3 that some of the locals threatened the Jews about their plans, but the Jews went ahead anyway. And since this was only a few months after the returnees' arrival to Jerusalem, then we see they began facing tough opposition almost immediately. 
and it would not let up over the years. Rather, it would stiffen. And these enemies claim that they seek your God and that they have been sacrificing to Him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. Who are these people? Well, we're going to describe them more carefully later on. But for now, just know that they were mostly foreigners imported by the Assyrians to the area of Samaria and other parts of the former kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, the kingdom of the ten northern tribes. Recall that around 723 BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and deported and scattered the ten Israelite tribes all over Asia. And once that land was emptied of Hebrews, they began immediately to import people from other conquered nations to replace them. This was standard operating procedure for the Assyrian government. A nation or a kingdom was overrun, the people were removed and scattered, and a different and foreign people were brought in to replace them. This produced a completely ruptured social fabric that the Assyrians believed made rebellion all the more difficult. Now, no doubt, there were family remnants of some of the ten tribes who had for one reason or another escaped that Assyrian deportation well over two centuries earlier. But by now, they were well assimilated through intermarriage with other ethnic groups, through the typical pagan religions these foreigners had brought with them. So while a distant memory of their Hebrew identity might have existed in some of them, as well as an inclusion of Jehovah and whatever multiple god pantheon they worshipped, they indeed would have nothing in common with these zealous and pious Jewish returnees who wanted to reinstitute the temple services for purposes of strict obedience to the law of Moses. Now, is their claim to have been sacrificing on the altar in Jerusalem all during the time that Judah was in Babylon true? According to Jeremiah 41 it is. But what they might have actually sacrificed upon was probably closer to a heap of rubble than a real altar. And to whom were they sacrificing? Likely Jehovah. But these folks worship multiple gods. So Jehovah was just one of several. He was the God of Jerusalem to them. But now the altar was rebuilt by these returning Jews and they wanted to use it. This didn't settle well with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the other Jewish leaders. So the response was, you and we have nothing in common. And then added, Koresh, king of Persia, ordered us to do it. Well, the first reason for their refusal was religious in nature. The second reason was political. Indeed, the king of Persia had given the responsibility to Zerubbabel and his returning Jewish caravan to rebuild the temple. No authority was given for them to include anyone they chose to help. Well, the consequences of this abrupt and less than cordial response to those locals who wanted to help but who were denied in a rather rough manner isn't so hard to imagine. 
So in verses 4 and 5 we read that these folks began harassing and making life difficult for these Jews who sought to rebuild the temple. They went so far as to bribe Persian government officials to frustrate any kind of progress on the structure. This active interference started in the later days of Cyrus's reign. It continued throughout his son and successor Cambyses' reign. Then through the, of the few weeks of an imposter who ruled immediately after Cambyses' death, then well into the reign of King Darius who followed the imposter. So what we learn is that up to the time of Darius, and Darius began to rule in 521 BC, about 17 years after the Jews first returned to Judah, there was no progress yet made on the temple. In fact, as I think we'll see, that first foundation that was laid, it had to be redone a second time before they could actually even start construction on the building. I want to close with this thought today. The temple rebuilding project began with joy and high expectations. It was approached with reverence, with enthusiasm to return to the true Bible-based religion. But almost immediately, they ran into ominous opposition. This opposition characterizes the remainder of the book of Ezra and plays a substantial role in Nehemiah. But, in some ways, on the surface, you know it might seem as though these troubles were self-made. A group of locals, who we shall call Sumerians for the lack of, or rather for the sake of an easy label, came forward, they expressed the desire to help and to contribute. They were slapped down very harshly. And in the Middle East, where the society has always operated on a shame and honor based system, such an offense as publicly refusing an offer of aid and uh, comfort, however insincere and manipulative the offer might have really been, this results in shame being heaped upon the rejected parties. And this shame has to be remedied. Are this going to be revenge that continues interminably? This is what's happening in the book of Ezra. So should the Jews have been more charitable, more understanding, more accommodating to the Sumerians? Should they have acted in love accepted their offer because it would no doubt bring at least a temporary time of peace and goodwill my answer is the Jews acted correctly doing God's will often means going against the expected conventions and courtesies of this world how could Zerubbabel and Yeshua allow these two groups to essentially merge into a common cause, thereby jeopardizing the identity of these returning Jews as faithful worshippers of the God of Israel alone? 
see, this is one of those instances in the Old Testament that is regularly used in church sermons to show how the advent of Christ and his teachings demonstrate that the Old Testament Jews should have reacted differently. They should have turned the other cheek. They should have let love rule. They should have shown Christian tolerance. They should have allowed the merger with the Sumerians to happen and let God worry about it, sorting it out later, if need be. Thus, in this same spirit spirit and rationale, we see efforts of some of the largest denominations today to try to find common ground with Islam or find ways to accept homosexuality as good and normal. And gay marriage is desirable, even applauded by Jesus. Why? Because it supposedly demonstrates our underlying values of love and mercy and peace. The Jews led by Zerubbabel knew they could not allow themselves to be joined with non-believers and idolaters who had no interest in scrupulously following God's word or they would lose the clear commission that God gave them to reinstitute true and proper worship. They must also have been tempted to find a suitable compromise with the Sumerians after months then years of barriers and roadblocks and threats and no progress on building that temple. But to their credit, they remained mostly on the high road. They did what was right in God's eyes and let the chips fall where they may. I can promise you that the church is never going to be able to be salt and light to this dark world by means of an evolving compromise with what God calls evil. Nor can we be God's reapers of souls by the dilution of our strong identity with Yeshua. Painting our positions on godly morality or the nature of the true biblical religion and on divinely commanded behavior in pale pastels instead of bold contrasting colors has led the body of believers to the edge of irrelevance, if not apostasy. Tolerance of sin, continued acceptance of false but familiar doctrines, and willing participation in whatever might be the current political and social correctness that makes us feel good, allows us to maintain a close relationship with, if not admiration, by the world, have to be curtailed. It has to be replaced with sincere obedience to the Lord at whatever the personal cost is to us. This is one of the most important lessons and principles that we'll learn from the book of Ezra. We'll continue with chapter 4 next time.